Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, I'm Charles Kirsch, and welcome to the third episode of my new podcast, Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a new podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be interviewing theater historian and playwright Peter Felicia. Peter has been the MC of the Theater World Award since 1996. Felicia currently writes weekly columns for Masterworks Broadway and Broadway Select. You can also find his musings on Critzerland and Theater Mania. Felicia is the author of several plays, including Adam's Gifts, Games, and God Shows Up, which had a recent off-Broadway run. He is critic emeritus of the Star Ledger and has written a number of theater history books, including Strippers, Showgirls, and Sharks, and The Great Parade, and was a common contributor to Theater Week magazine. Peter, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Charles. So let's start at the beginning. What was the first show you ever saw? Uh, My Fair Lady, in fact. Uh, What had happened was um, I I came from a very working class family. My father was a plumber, my mother a housewife, and theater was just not on the radar at all. Um, I didn't even know they were still doing plays uh, when I was growing up. But um, neighbors had cast albums of shows, and My Fair Lady was one of them, and that one really tickled my fancy so much that my mother said, well, when we go to New York this summer, you can uh, see it. So um, that was the first one I ever saw. You know, there's an interesting story involved with this, because um, that day, um, what had happened was Margot Moser, who was playing Eliza Doolittle, and Michael Allenson, who was playing Henry Higgins, are doing the scene where she comes to his apartment for the first time, and he makes her feel bad, and she cries. And as a result, she wipes her nose on her sleeve. And what happened then is Henry Higgins is grossed out and says, oh, Eliza, use a handkerchief. And he gives her his handkerchief, and she then wipes her nose on her sleeve and then wipes the residue off with the handkerchief as opposed to using the handkerchief for her nose. Okay, that's 1961. When the movie came out in 64, I noticed that Audrey Hepburn didn't do that, and I was surprised because I thought it was such a good joke. Well, anyway, what had happened was, years later, I realized that this was something the actress might have added herself. And then, on March 31st, 1993, and the reason I know it's that date so well is because it was the 50th anniversary of Oklahoma. Uh, I was invited to a party at the Rainbow Room and we all have assigned seats and I sit down and the woman next to me says, hello, I'm Margot Moser. And I said, oh, I've got a question for you. Did you add the bit where you wiped your nose on your sleeve and you wiped it off with a handkerchief? And she was thrilled, of course, that I remembered that because this was, you know, a third of a century later. And um, she said, yes, yes, I, I added that. I thought it was a good idea. All right. At the time, I was writing a book called Let's Put on a Musical, and uh, it was a guide to community theater in high schools, telling them what to do, what not to do, suggestions. And I put that in the book. Uh, Eliza might um, do that uh, in your current production. Well, (laughs) about two years later, I got a letter from a community theater actress in Vermont who told me that uh, she was 
down to the wire in auditions for playing Eliza Doolittle. It was between her and another woman. And they had her read that scene, and she did that. She actually wiped her nose on her sleeve, wiped it off with a handkerchief, and they thought she invented it on the spot, and they gave her the role on the spot, all because of that. So, uh, so that's what I, one of the things I remember most about My Fair Lady. And after your love of theater was sort of ignited with My Fair Lady, what were some of the records you bought and what were some of the most worn out of those records? Well, what had happened was um, the next show I saw, it was simply because um, my uncle got free seats to it, uh, was Kiss Me Kate. So that was one that it was in summer stock. And, um, and this was interesting because this was the first time I was hearing a score that I didn't know before because with uh, My Fair Lady, I knew it inside out. And by the way, on the original cast album of My Fair Lady and Get Me to the Church on Time, there's actually um, the, the singers sing, Be Sure and Get Me to the Church on Time. And I noticed when I saw the show, it was, for God's sake, Get Me to the Church on Time. But they didn't want to put that on the album back in 1956. So anyway, that I noticed. But Kiss Me Kate was the first time I ever heard a score without knowing it inside out. And um, it was terrific, especially the song Always True to You, Darling, in My Fashion. Uh, where um, the woman sings about the fact that she's interested in the man she meets next. Um, um, Mr. Harris Plutocrat wants to give my cheek a pat. If the Harris pat means a Paris hat, okay. That's a terrific lyric. And um, so that was the first album um, I bought. And then what had happened was um, there was uh, the touring company of Bye Bye Birdie came to Boston. And I noticed the ad in the paper. And ironically enough, uh, I went to a Catholic school and on November 1st, you don't have any school because that's all Saints Day. And I looked in the paper and I saw that Bye Bye Birdie was playing a Wednesday matinee that day. I was very lucky that it was a Wednesday. I had the day off from school. Wednesday matinees were cheaper. So I only had to spend $4.40 for a first balcony seat. It was just a wonderful confluence that I had the day off from school. And uh, it worked out in that way that I was able to go. So that was the, the second record I bought. And two weeks later, um, I saw Fiorello. And that was the third record I bought. And boy, did I wear those out. Uh, my father was so annoyed hearing there's, there's a siren that goes off at the beginning of Fiorello. And I mean, he was going crazy hearing that siren so many times as I used to sit in front of the speakers and conduct the orchestra myself. I didn't know what I was doing, but uh, I was certainly making a lot of hand motions because I was very inspired by that overture. It's interesting to see that even back then you had the sort of insights about the little things on albums and in shows that today you write about in your Masterworks Broadway columns. So... Living in Boston, as you did, you got to see a lot of out-of-town tryouts back when all the shows had pretty much had to have an out-of-town tryout. What were some of your favorites? Well, the first one was I Can Get a Few Wholesale, and um, I came out raving about this actress named Barbara Streisand. Um, I was just crazy for her. Her song, Miss Marmelstein, just knocked me out. And um, I told every kid in my neighborhood, oh, oh, when this original cast album comes out, you have got to hear this woman and this song. And um, what I didn't realize is that my friends um, didn't get Jewish humor. I, I, 
I feel like an honorary Jew, um, and um, I really get Jewish humor. And so 14 kids assemble in my bedroom. I play the song, and 10 seconds into it, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. They thought I was a moron for liking this Barbara Streisand. Um, it was a year and a half before I heard her name pronounced on the Judy Garland show. It was Barbara Streisand. But nevertheless, at that point in time, that's what I thought it was. Well, um, the thing <laughs> was that when I went to her concert in Madison Square Garden, where they charged three hundred and fifty dollars a seat, which was a lot of money for a theater ticket in those days. I thought, okay, Dickie Tompkins, Jeffrey Bates, Donnie Mahoney, who was right? So uh, that made a great impression, and I still think it's a wonderful score I can get for wholesale. But as a result, the one I looked forward to most was Funny Girl, because of course now Barbara Streisand was coming back as a star, and, and that was the first one I ever sent away a mail order for, that you had to actually send a check in the mail. Um, I didn't have a checking account. I was um, still a teenager. Um, and um, I got a money order and sent it in and got my seat. And um, I was so thrilled. This was the one I was looking forward to more than anything else. Well, here's what's interesting about Funny Girl. And here's what's interesting about Out of Town Tryouts. Funny Girl opened in Boston on Saturday, January 11th. I went on Thursday, January 16th. By the way, the same day Hello Dolly was opening on Broadway. Now that's five days later. And there was a slip in the playbill saying new running order of songs. And what had happened was that in five days, four songs were added and five were dropped. It just goes to show how people worked so hard in those days. I won't say that these songs weren't written before and they, you know, they had thrown them out during rehearsals and said, all right, let's put it in. They, I'm not saying they wrote that many songs in that much time, but what I am saying is that they didn't sit pat. There's a show uh, from the 90s called Ain't Broadway Grand. A friend of mine came to see it during the first week of previews. He left the playbill at my house. Okay, a month later, when I go to see it and review it, um, I get my own playbill. Well, let's see how much work they did. Well, here's the work they did. Act two, scene three took place backstage at the Mark Hellinger Theater. Now we took backstage at the Alvin Theater. That was it. That's the only change they made. And they didn't make any changes in the songs. And the show didn't run any length of time. Funny Girl, of course, ran a long time. And you might say, well, yeah, well, Barbara Streisand. She didn't stay with it more than a year. They'll give her credit. She stayed with it. She honored her contract. She um, barely missed a performance, if she did at all. And um, did the job. Whatever we think about Barbara Streisand today, I mean, she, she honored her contract. And um, <laughs> I mean, Bayok Lee, uh, who directed Chorus Line, told me out of the first 268 performance, one of her actors called in six, 62 times. I mean, come on. So anyway, Funny Girl was the show I was looking forward to more than any other show. And it was so long that I couldn't wait for it to end. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I said, I can't believe that this is the show I've looked forward to the most. And I couldn't wait for it to end. Um, but the really exciting ones truly during my years in Boston were the Sondheim shows, um, Company, Follies, Little Night Music, and Pacific Overtures. Ironically enough, after Pacific Overtures, my life changed and I moved to New York. And ironically enough, uh, Harold Prince and Stephen Sondheim stopped bringing their shows to Boston. I'm not saying I was the reason that I left, you know, but nevertheless, uh, that's what happened. And it was really exciting to be there at the first audience of Company. And what was so interesting, people talk about this company being such a radically different show. Yes, of course it was. But what was so wonderful about it was that Harold Prince had such sure-footed direction that it didn't seem revolutionary in the worst sense of the word. It seemed so 
cogent and so sure-footed that you really went along with the ride, not even realizing that it was so wildly different in the best sense of the word. So the next one was Follies, of course, which I did have issues with because I really don't believe those four people are going to live happily ever after. Um, I still have that problem with Follies. But nevertheless, I mean, certainly Follies has four things that are extraordinary. Um, the best logo ever, the best opening number ever, beautiful girls, um, the best production number ever that I've ever seen. And you have to understand that I've seen about 80 to 90 percent of the Broadway musicals in the last um, 60 years, um, Who's That Woman? And frankly, the other one I didn't see, which was the best song ever written out of town, which is I'm Still Here, because I saw the song Can That Boy Foxtrot, which I thought was terrific. And I remember my friend Richard Norton calling me up and saying, he's replacing the Foxtrot song. And I said, I, what? What? That song's phenomenal. What's he going to write that's better than that? Well, he showed me, as he often did. Now, the thing with night music was the fact that this was uh, the first performance. I still remember the date, January 20th, 1973. And every human being I knew who cared about the Broadway musical was there. Because um, after Company and Follies, who could wait for a second performance? We were all there. I mean, people from out of town, people we had uh, written to, letters, that type of thing, everybody met. I mean, there had to be at least 40 people I knew there that night. It was incredible because we just could not wait. Um, I remember that um, my friend Bill Martin uh, was sitting next to me and he didn't like it. And I remember his saying, there hasn't been one decent song all night long. And at that moment, you heard the vamp do da-da-da-da. And I said, you know, I think this was going to be good. And it was send in the clowns. Um, you know, Bill and I lost touch. And I'm really sorry about that because um, he was quite a good friend. I don't, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, uh, somebody doesn't make the phone call and then days turn into months and years. And, and um, you know, I, I'd like to know if he changed his mind on night music. As Frank Rich said when he reviewed um, Into the Woods, time and second hearings always um, count with a Sondheim score. And uh, I have a feeling Bill came around and thinks that uh, Little Night Music is very good. So let's go briefly for a minute into your non-theater career. You wrote a lot of YA novels back then, including What's in a Name. And can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea for some of those? Was it all <laughs> Sure. Um, uh, what had happened was um, my girlfriend, uh, Linda, was working for Seventeen magazine and there was a, um, a Christmas party. And I went there and the managing editor, a guy named Ray Robinson, um, had a, a background in sports and we were talking sports. And I said, have you ever noticed that um, people, um, I'm sorry, that sports teams named after people tend to do better than sports teams that are named after animals, which do better than sports teams named after inanimate objects. And, um, and he was amused by this. In other words, the most successful baseball team is the Yankees, named after people. The most successful football team, the Patriots, named after people. They weren't then. I was using the 49ers and the Cowboys, but again, people. Um, the um, in, in basketball, the Celtics, named after people. In uh, hockey, the Canadiens, named after a whole race of people. Um, and um, the, the least successful football team um, is, uh, one of them is the Jets, again, named after inanimate objects. So, you know, what's in a name, you know? And he just thought this was the funniest thing, uh, especially when I said, notice that the New Orleans Saints 
and the angels, the California angels, don't do well at all because they're saints. They're angels. They want you to win. So he thought that was hilarious. And he said to my girlfriend, listen, uh, your boyfriend, he, he seems interesting. Why do we get him to write a column um, uh, giving advice to teenage girls? So suddenly I was writing a column for Seventeen Magazine. And as a result, an agent got in touch with me and said, um, listen, why don't we put together a book of these columns? I can sell that. So I said, sure. And then she said, um, why don't you uh, start thinking of ideas for um, books, uh, YA novels, uh, because I can sell those too, based on the fact that you have this reputation from Seventeen Magazine. So um, yeah, What's in a Name uh, is about a girl who has an impossibly difficult last name and wants to change it. And her family is up in arms that, um, that she wants to change it. And um, <laughs> this is highly autobiographical because my name is um, impossible. People mispronounce it all the time. You did very well, Charles. Um, <laughs> but they mispronounce it all the time. And um, I'm so sorry that um, when people do it, because then when they hear the real pronunciation, they get embarrassed. And I say, no, 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 the name is impossible. Literally have a collage of misspellings of my name. Um, there are 77 misspellings of my name that I have in a collage. I don't mean that I have the same one, you know, 77 times. I mean, 77 unique, different misspellings of my name. Though, frankly, two of them um, spell the last name perfectly, but it's Robert Felicia and Frank Felicia. So that counts too. Um, so that's in my collage. So I decided to write a book about a girl who has an impossibly difficult last name. And that's what What's in a Name uh, turned out to be. So that's how that happened. Yes, I did a lot of those. Um, I did about, I don't know, seven, eight, Eight, nine, ten of those. Uh, but then what happened was Theater Week started, and uh, of course, my first love is theater, and I started doing a column for them, and it led to the job at the Star Ledger. And so, as a result, um, I left that part of my life behind. So, tell us about working for the Star Ledger as a critic. As a critic, how do you approach a show? Do you try to go in unbiased? Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you, um, I'm very influenced by Walter Kerr because he wrote in one of his books. Some mornings I'm drinking my coffee and I'm reading the review that I had written the day before and I wished the show were as good as I made it sound. And that influenced me so much, that one line. I'm so glad I read that because I realized the job of a reviewer really should be, I believe this in the core of my heart, really should be not whether or not you like the show, but the advice you can give the person reading the review whether or not he or she should go see the show. So I have given a lot of good reviews to shows I have not liked because I know there's an audience for them. Back in 1994, I was in Teaneck, New Jersey, seeing a new musical, which I did not like at all. However, the audience was crazy for it. The next day I wrote a review saying, the audience threw back their heads in laughter so many times that today they're going to have to be outfitted with whiplash collars. The phone rang. I answered the phone. Peter Felicia, you didn't like it, did you? It was the guy who ran the theater. I said, no, Jim, I didn't. He said, I could tell. I could tell because you really wrote a review where you were essentially reviewing the audience. So he said, but thank you. Thank you. You know, we're, we're faxing out your reviews. That's how long ago this was. And um, a lot of people, as a result of that review, are coming here, and maybe they'll be able to raise the money and bring it to New York. And 
they did. And that was, I love you. You're perfect. Now change, which ran 12 years here. Now the thing is, uh, I'm not blowing my own horn. It's the star ledger was the big paper in New Jersey. It sold three times as many copies as the next biggest paper. So the point is it was the paper that had the influence, not me, but nevertheless, because the star ledger gave it a good review, not Felicia, the star ledger gave it a good review. People paid attention and they brought it in. And the thing is I had nothing in common with this play. It was about single people. You know, I, I'd been uh, 1993, I'd been with my, my girlfriend for 25 years. Is that what it was? Um, um, and um, you know, I, I'm not young. I, I don't have anything in common with this show. But what I like to be is a theatrical matchmaker. When I see a show, I think, okay, who would like this? And that's what I do. So many, many shows I have given good reviews to. Now, there's a, a young critic who um, wrote a review of a Christmas musical. And he wrote his review uh, as a letter to Santa Claus. Dear Santa. Can we stop having these Christmas musicals? I've seen four in the last week and I'm tired of them. And I gave him hell. I said, that is not your job to tell us your problems, that you're tired of seeing Christmas shows. You get in free. People who have to pay money want to know which is the best of the four shows because they don't have the money to bring themselves and their kids to the theater to four shows during Christmas season. The League of Broadway Theaters some years ago did a survey and found out that a heavy theater goer, one who goes all the time, goes four times a year. And by the way, since tickets have really zoomed up in price since that survey was taken, I'll bet it's two or three. Um, and so as a result, tell the people which is the best show that you think they'll enjoy the most, not your problems. So I thought that was really quite terrible. And I mean, there's no reason why a critic should just show off and, and show how much he knows uh, or she knows that you know, we saw all these flaws because the average person doesn't feel that way. There was a young theater company in, in New Jersey called 12 Miles West because it was 12 Miles West of Broadway. That's the way they named it. They were just starting out. They called me. They said, um, "Listen, um, um, uh, uh, do you uh, would you do, would you deign to come and see us? I mean, we just started." I said, "Yeah, of course." They were thrilled. Okay, so we made arrangements for me to come on a Thursday. Thursday, they called me. Um, um, listen, uh, yeah, uh, could would would you would you mind coming like tomorrow because we're not quite ready? I said, "How about if I come Saturday?" Oh, great! Yeah, that'd be great. So I went Saturday, and they weren't ready. However, they were close. And here's the thing about theater reviews. Theater reviews are essentially obsolete the moment they're written because indeed that's the performance you saw. And theater people tend to get better the more they do the show. And especially in New Jersey, by the way, when, when shows didn't have as much rehearsal time as they do on Broadway. So as a result, I wrote a review of what I thought the Sunday afternoon performance would be. And here's the thing. You tell the reader that the show is good. He comes in with an attitude, oh, this is going to be good. The actors on stage have been told they're good. Ah, good. I'm good. You know, they get more confidence. And as a result, each feeds the other. The audience feeds the actors. The actors feed the audience. Everybody has a better time. So it's a, a very important thing, I think, to be indulgent in that way. I mean, after all, a movie isn't going to change. A TV show isn't going to change. What is there is there. That you can review without any feeling that you're being unfair to the people because they didn't have enough rehearsal time. Those things are frozen. Theater is not frozen. And as a result, you should treat it warmly. So let's talk about interviewing, which you've done almost as often as criticism. 
what has been the most unusual situation in which you've ever interviewed a guest? Oh, um, <laughs> Betty Buckley. Um, what had happened was she was doing Gypsy at the Paper Mill Playhouse, and um, I showed up and uh, she said, um, uh, listen, I'm in a rush. Let's do it while we're in a cab. And she got in the cab first and she gave the driver uh, the, um, the address and I didn't hear what it was. And here I was in the cab with her with my tape recorder and I had no idea if she was going two blocks, three miles, a hundred miles. I had no idea. And it, the pressure was incredible because I'm asking questions a mile a minute, not knowing when this is going to end because clearly when the cab ride ends, um, <laughs> the interview is over. So the pressure was amazing. Amazing. Similarly speaking, Patty Lapone called me once while she was driving in a car and she was going through tunnels and we lost the connection four times and I was petrified we wouldn't get it back and the, I had a deadline looming. It had to be in that day and uh, you know I had to write the story and in and out, in and out, in and out while she was driving to the airport. Oh, it was just um, so incredibly tough, you know. So, but I will say this about interviewing. One of the things I love to do when I interview people, love to do, is say at the end of the interview, all right, let's pretend it's the day the interview comes out. Before you start reading, you look to heaven and you say, oh, I hope he put in the part about, about what? What must be in any interview written about you or the show you're doing? What do you most want to see in that interview? And it really is a very good question because it shows you're on their side. And um, also, you know, <laughs> you're going to please the person when the interview comes out because you know that important thing is going to be in there. So um, it's a wonderful thing to do. And my favorite response to that, by the way, comes from Linda Hart when she was doing Hairspray. And I said, what do you want to most see in the interview? And she said, um, things I actually said, meaning that obviously in the past she'd been misquoted and she didn't want to be misquoted again. And I thought that was a hilarious answer to that question. Which one or two guests have you been the most excited or starstruck at interviewing? I have to say, I haven't been starstruck at all. I'm, it, I, I wonder if indeed, like for example, I wouldn't want to interview Barbara Streisand because I have a feeling she'd be difficult, but I would like to see how I would feel if I were going in there. Um, when I was a kid, I was crazy for the Bye Bye Birdie movie. Um, it was, you know, I was a teenager. I had seen the original um, show, as I had told you, but Anne Margaret, you know, really, really fired me up. And I just thought she was terrific. And I saw that movie seriously 10 times in the first two weeks it was out. And um, I was just crazy about it. So when the time came to interview Anne Margaret, um, I, I, I was surprised that it didn't phase me at all that I was um, talking to her. Not at all. I, I just don't feel... Um, antsy about that stuff. So um, I don't know what it says about me. I don't know, but um, it hasn't happened yet. I will say the one that I enjoyed the most uh, was Dame Edna. She's, um, yeah, okay. Um, uh, Barry Humphreys is the real name, but the, uh, and it's a female impersonator. And the rules are, when you talk to Dame Edna, you cannot allude to Barry Humphreys. Cannot be done. You are talking to Dame Edna. So anyway, so, you know, Barry Humphreys was an actor before he decided to become Dame Edna. In fact, he was in the original cast of Oliver. He uh, played the undertaker in Oliver. So anyway, I'm interviewing Dame Edna. And one of my questions is, Dame Edna, have you ever thought of playing the great roles in musical theater? Mame, 
Dolly, the undertaker and Oliver. So that's how I uh, got around that. And, you know, in a way, I'm sorry that I said it. And here's why. Because when I said Mame, Dolly, she started to answer the question. And when I said The Undertaker and Oliver, she stopped and she said, The Undertaker and Oliver is not a great role, which I thought was hilarious. So, so that's one of my most memorable things. And frankly, that is the only interview tape that I have ever played just for pleasure because she was so hilarious. I mean, the other ones I, I never listened to. I mean, I keep them, but I don't listen to them because you never know when you need them again. You know, I, I remember when I had interviewed Gwen Verdon, who was so wonderful, so warm, so terrific. And she really wound up helping me out uh, tremendously um, because I was, it was the first year I was president of the Drama Desk Awards. And at that time, the president of the Drama Desk had to get the celebrities to appear at... Um, at the uh, ceremony and um, she was so nice during the interview that I said, um, listen, uh, we're doing the drama desk awards on Sunday night. Would you come and present? And she said, sure. And this was really something because nobody, no president had ever got anybody of that stature to come and present. So, um, so she was really quite wonderful. But even uh, with that, uh, the only time I listened is, I'm sorry to say, when she died, because I wanted to write a column in tribute to her. So I wanted to hear what she had to say again. But in terms of sheer entertainment, Dave Mender is the one I pull out from time to time and laugh and laugh and laugh. What questions that you've asked have led to maybe conspicuously evasive answers from stars? Oh, yeah. Um, first off, um, so many times they just um, <clears throat> say, turn off the tape recorder, and um, they'll tell me. One, th one thing that really resonates with me is Larry Grossman. Larry Grossman is a composer. He wrote um, Minnie's Boys, Good Time Charlie, Snoopy, the sequel to You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Okay. So anyway, um, he was once married to uh, Jill Colmar, and Jill Colmar was the daughter of Richard Colmar, who produced the musical Plain and Fancy, and Dorothy Kilgallen. Have you ever heard of her? I have. Yeah, she was a columnist, and um, <clears throat> she was a very respected columnist, syndicated in a, in, in a number of newspapers, and um, anyway... What happened was there was the Kennedy assassination in 1963, and um, a guy, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, we're told, killed um, Kennedy. And only two days later, a guy named Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald. And he was in prison, and he did agree to be interviewed by Dorothy Kilgallen. And uh, she interviewed him. And before she could write the story, she was found dead in her apartment. Now, what's really interesting is that she was found dead, and they said that it was barbiturates uh, mixed with alcohol. And they found her sitting up in bed reading a book. And friends who knew her said, when, they, when the name of the book was released, said, wait a minute, she read that book a few weeks ago, and she hated it. So what was she doing reading the book again? So a lot of people think that Dorothy Kilgallen was killed purposely before she could write the interview with Jack Ruby. So uh, who knows? Who knows? But anyway, the point is, so I said to Larry Grossman, um, so you were Dorothy Kilgallen's son-in-law for a while. And he said, yes. I said, what do you know about the Kennedy assassination? And that's when he turned off the tape recorder. He did it and said, 
Oh, uh, 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 I, 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 I never talk about the Kennedy assassination. Never, never. Oh my God, what a time it was. Oh, yeah, I'm telling you, the, the Secret Service men were outside our building every time we came out. We knew. I know our phones were tapped. I could tell they were. I know they were. Well, I, 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 I just, I, I never, I never talk about it. Now, wouldn't be something if the guy who wrote Snoopy knows the secrets of the Kennedy assassination. That would really be something. So, um, so that's one that really uh, uh, comes as first uh, and foremost in terms of questions I ask that people do not want to answer. So let's go back a little bit to your reviewing. How do you take notes during a show or do you? Oh, incessantly. Um, you know, there was a letter to the Times once saying, God, I was sitting next to a critic and he was taking notes and it drove me crazy. And um, I thought, gee, I wonder if this person was sitting next to me because I'm telling you, I take notes like crazy. And I'm so glad I do. The next morning when I write the review, I can't tell you how many times I see things that, you know, they may not be terrific, but I think they're terrific, that I wouldn't have remembered had I not written them down. And you never know what you need. So you always write down everything because so many times um, things tie in together and you can give three examples that prove your point, whether or not something's good or bad, that you might not have, you might say, oh, I wish I had written that line down. Oh, oh, yeah, because that really ties in so well with this one. You know, so you have to write every thing down. God knows you don't use 50% of it, maybe even more, but you never know what you need. So yes, I write like crazy. And frankly, you know, I've thought to myself during this period of time, you know, it's now been so many months since I've reviewed a show for obvious reasons. I've thought, wow, I wonder if I'm going to be able to do it again, to get back in the swing of things. It's going to be so odd to uh, not just to see a show, but to actually take notes. I mean, am, am I going to be rusty? You know, <laughs> it's something that's really um, uh, bothered me. And of course, you know, who knows when we're going to be back to uh, seeing shows and taking notes. So you're on the nominating committee for a lot of awards, including the Theatre Worlds and the Drama Desks. Without naming names, unless you can, have any of the ones you really, really championed not made it? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yes. Um, we are honor-bound not to give specifics. But um, I'll tell you, um, uh, let me put it this way. I'm, I'm going to answer the question in a slightly different way. What I have found is that if somebody is one of the other nominators, for example, there are seven nominators for the Drama Desk Awards. If one of the other nominators is truly, truly, truly passionate about something, if it means so much to him or her, I will um, vote um, in favor of that because I do believe that um, somebody who feels that strongly about it should be supported. Um, I can't say that people always do the same for me, but that's uh, but that's my philosophy. So um, with the drama, I, what I will say about the drama desk is that we do meet and we um, sit in the same room and we talk and we really uh, mull it over. This is very different from the Tony Awards, by the way. The Tony Awards, you sit in the room, you don't say a word, you simply vote and that's it. There is no discussion whatsoever. Uh, with the Lucille Hotel Awards, which I'm on the committee, uh, there are about 30 people, and we all meet uh, and we uh, discuss to the nth degree everything that we feel, uh, and we um, and we certainly bring it up. Um, 
everything that we feel. So, and really about 30 people, I mean that. So there's a lot of discussion that goes on there. And um, so uh, I, I, this year I was put on the Cheetah Rivera Awards, which uh, are just for dancing, and I didn't get to do it uh, because, of course, um, we haven't voted because we're not sure there's going to be these things. As for the Theatre World Awards, um, which, yes, I, I have been um, the uh, committee chairman as you say, the MC too, since 1996. Uh, what's happened there is that we simply vote. We vote, um, our top choice is six points, five points, four, three, two, one. And, um, and w people just simply send in um, from the list I compile. I can, uh, Theater World Awards are for debuts on or off Broadway, the first significant role you have. So in other words, if you're in the ensemble of seven shows and then suddenly you get a part that's really good, you're eligible. Uh, you, nobody says, oh, you were in seven shows because of you. It, it, it's the one where people really say, oh, my God, look at that person. And, and you look at the playbill to find out the name of that person. That doesn't happen when you're in the ensemble. So as a result, um, we simply vote six, five, four, three, two, one. And uh, the points turn out to be the way they are. And, um, and that's how the six men and six women are chosen uh, every year. Uh, frankly, this year we've made our decision, but we haven't announced them because we're really hoping that we're going to do the ceremony um, even uh, so far after the fact. I don't, I mean, that's less likely every day, but who knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows. So tell us about emceeing the theater worlds. What have been some of the sort of accidents, um, people who have canceled or people who have been really generous about it? Oh, well, nobody's more generous about it than Brian Stokes Mitchell. Um, he won for a show called Mail uh, back in the 80s. Uh, this is before I was involved, obviously. And he was so thrilled that my predecessor, John Willis, recognized him in this flop show. I think it ran 17 performances that he's been very loyal to the organization. Now, um, I, I don't um, actually approach people and say, will you do the show? Um, we have producers who do that, but they, there's a sheet that they show me of everybody's name that they've approached and what the person has said. So yes, um, I will attend. No, I will not be a presenter. Um, I'll see. No, I'll be out of town. Brian Stokes Mitchell's answer one year was, I will do anything you want me to do. Okay, more to the point. Um, in the years that he was doing King Hedley II at the, um, what's now the August Wilson Theater, I don't know if it was called that then, but anyway, that's four blocks from where I live. So anyway, I was walking past the theater on Saturday afternoon, and I happened to notice um, the board in the lobby saying, at this performance, the role usually played by Brian Stokes Mitchell will be played by whomever. And this was Saturday. We were doing our awards on Monday, and I was nervous. You know, all right, um, let me see if he's going to be in tonight. I purposely walked by Saturday night at this performance, the role. Uh-oh. Well, all right, maybe he couldn't do two performances. Maybe he'll be back tomorrow. I went back Sunday at this performance, the role usually played. Uh-oh. And Monday morning, he called me, and he said, um, my doctors have ordered me on vocal rest. Um, I can't do it. I said, no, you must. You must. You know that John Willis noticed you when you were a nobody. You must do this. Stokes, if you do this, I promise you, I will never ask you to do this again. And he came and he did it. And more to the point, since then, I've asked him twice more. I broke my promise and he's done it. 
So it really is quite remarkable how wonderful he has been to this organization. And you really have to tip your hat to Brian Stokes Mitchell. Now let's talk about some of your plays and books. So you just had a play, God Shows Up, that had an off-Broadway run with the cast, including Lou Liberatori. How did you come up with the idea for that one? I was commissioned. What had happened was the Theatre World Awards is responsible for this. Um, Eric Krebs, an off-Broadway producer of long standing, I'm a Broadway producer too, for that matter, um, who started the George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey, came to the Theatre World Awards. And um, at the next day he called me. He said, listen, I think you're very funny. I thought you were a terrific MC, And as a result, I've had an idea for a play. And um, why don't you write it? So um, I met with him and he told me his idea. And what was really great is that I didn't quite go for his idea. I, I, I didn't, I didn't. And I said, no, Eric, um, I think it should be this. And he was so good at saying, okay, run with it. Go, go with what you think is going to turn out. And um, he's so good at admitting that um, he really liked the play very much. Now, ironically enough, and sadly enough, he had a little developmental place called the Playroom on 46th Street, and um, he just let it go. And the press release said, among his favorite productions are, and he mentioned my play, and I bet he did around 50 to 100 productions in that theater. And to, for him to mention that one really um, was wonderful. The other day, seriously, um, two days ago, he um, called me to his apartment and said, listen, I have another idea for a play. And um, ironically enough, the same thing is happening. Um, he gave me the idea. And while he hasn't heard my ideas yet, um, he went to Cape May for the weekend. He's going to come back next week. And it's going to be the same situation. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really adapting his idea and changing it. We'll see if he goes for it. He may not. But at this point in time, uh, we may have another play that uh, happens um, because of his idea spurring it. But he's a terrific producer. He is so, so in love with the theater. Every now and then he says, that's it. I'm not going to do anything. And two weeks later he says, I've got this new project, you know? So, um, so he really is quite wonderful and um, delighted and honored that he um, entrusted me with the first idea and seems to be interested in having me do a second. You've also put on the hat of a book writer in writing a musical called And the Winner Is with Gerard Alessandrini, creator of Forbidden Broadway. Can you tell us I'm sorry, how... You can you tell us how writing a book is different from writing a play? Well, it's it's a very different type of show. Um, it's it's not a conventional <laughs> musical. Uh, it's called "And the Winner Is," and uh, what it is is an audience participation show. It's um, it's it's essentially a low level Tony Awards, but low level. Um, and uh, the people who come to the awards uh, can sign up in advance or sign up their friends or relatives in advance to be winners. So in other words, um, the nominees for, um, uh, for best uh, performer in a musical are um, Michael Jackson, New Faces, Patti Lapone, An Enemy of the People, uh, Woody Allen, Father of the Bride, um, and the winner is Eddie Shapa. So in other words, the person is somebody in the audience who gets up there, thanks um, his, um, 
his relatives, his friends, um, uh, uh, my daughter Gail, my son Paul, that type of thing. And then we have them do a scene from the show they're in. It, um, for example, uh, Houdini, The Lost Years. And we have them do a magic trick. Of course, it fails, but it's Houdini's last years, so he's not as good as he was. Um, and they give him a little award, which costs $1.98, and um, which says Best Performer of the Year. And what I really love is when they go off, stage whichever way they go they're deemed the wrong way and they have to be sent the other way which always happens in award show you've seen that a million times the people go off the wrong way so so that's what that show is and um if we live long enough to see theater uh, rebound then indeed um i think we do have a producer interested so we'll see what happens you've also written a play called musicals without music which is sort of exploring twisted things that might have happened after popular musicals I'm not going to spoil any of the ones that are in there because I know that all of our listeners will probably have a chance to see it at some point. But tell me some of the ones that you were considering but dropped. Oh, all right. Well, yes, Musical About Music is indeed... um most of the time what happens after the final curtain comes down. So... um So, yes, um uh, one of the things that... um that I did consider uh, was a scene from Les Miserables that um, I have since dropped in favor of a different Les Miserables scene. But the thing is, what I learned from the musical Something Rotten uh, was the fact um, Something Rotten had this big production number called A Musical, which um, dealt with little snippets of musicals because the, the, we're back in Shakespearean times and um, there's a guy named Nostradamus, not the famous Nostradamus, but a distant relative, who gets little signals here and there into the future. And so he gets little snippets of musicals and they put them all together. And what was really interesting is that late in the show, uh, there's a scene where um, they're doing the musical and the person, um, the actor, I saw the show five times because um, I really adored it. Anyway, obviously, if I saw it five times, but um, the person said, I am what I am and what I am is an illusion. And nobody laughed. And what I realized was people didn't know La Caja Fall. How come they knew the other shows and they didn't know La Caja Fall? Why did they get the jokes about the music man? Why did they get the jokes about My Fair Lady? But they didn't get La Caja Fall. Why? I'll tell you why, because there's no movie of La Caja Fall. And so many people know musicals from movies rather than from actually seeing them on stage. So as a result, what I've done is make sure that every show I do has had a movie, uh, because that's the way that people really know um, Broadway musicals, for better or worse. So, um, so um, we've, uh, we've uh, um, my director, Rob Schneider, whom you know from uh, his podcast, um, which is really such a wonderful one, um, that he does with Kevin uh, David Thomas, uh, we've, we've collaborated, uh, he's directed, um, and he did a, f a fabulous presentation in uh, Plymouth last year. And uh, we're, we, were, we, have, we were set to do a, a presentation on March 21st. Well, as you know, uh, March 12th was the end of everything, so uh, we didn't do it. So we're raring to go when everything starts up again. But um, um, I have high hopes for musicals without music. Four people um, putting on hats, uh, representing different characters in musicals. And, uh, and yeah, I think it'll uh, work out. So before I ask you about all your books, I'd like to ask you about a kind of writing you've done a lot, which is a very little space, which is liner notes for cast albums. How yeah. do you approach that when you're asked to do it? I just listen to it incessantly. And frankly, I listen so 
incessantly that after the album comes out, I know. I mean, maybe that'll change as time goes on for nostalgia purposes, but it, it just rules my life. And listening to it over and over and over and over again, suddenly there's an article that takes shape. But um, yeah, I've done about 20, 25, I don't know, something like that. And um, what I'm really happy was when I was asked to do the one for Pretty Bell. Pretty Bell was a musical that closed in Boston back in 1971. Um, and um, I was very, very fond of it. I know it has a million problems, but I think the score is quite wonderful. And I was really very glad to have it, um, the opportunity to do that one, because it meant so much to me. Ironically, here's an interesting thing. Um, at that time, I was a school teacher in Boston, and um, I, I was able to go to um, a dress rehearsal of, um, of Pretty Bell. So I was at the very first audience and I was at the very final performance. Um, and Angela Lansbury was in the show and it obviously meant a great deal to her because the last um, three lines of the show had her singing Pretty Bell, Pretty Bell, Pretty Bell. And she sang it twice and then put up her arm and let it fall to her side as if to say, Oh, it's over. And, she, you know, it was just so sad. I, I was so moved by it because I love the show so much. Well, anyway, there's a writer who's tried to uh, resuscitate it. And Margaret Stein, who is the uh, widow of Julie Stein, the composer, called me up and said, listen, we're doing a reading at my apartment. Would you come? And uh, I said, sure, absolutely. And um, I went there and I'm at the elevator and there's a woman standing waiting for the elevator. And she said, are you going out for the reading? I said, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I said, are you um, involved? She said, yeah, I'm playing Pretty Bell. Uh, she said, um, hi, I'm um, Jenny Eisenhower. Well, Jenny Eisenhower is the daughter of David and Julie Eisenhower. And Julie Eisenhower was the daughter of Richard Nixon, the president, who resigned. And I had seen her in Philadelphia. She does a lot of acting in Philadelphia. And I didn't want to say, I'm the critic who wrote. Um, her grandfather was famous for making the statement, I am not a crook, but she is because she steals every scene that she's in. Uh, she's really a terrific actress. But anyway, there she is playing Pretty Bell. And I'm thinking, when I was a school teacher in Boston, when I saw Pretty Bell, did I ever think the next time I would see it, I would be in Julie Stein's apartment seeing Richard Nixon's granddaughter do the show. I mean, it was really quite amazing, quite amazing indeed. So you never know where life is going to take you. But yeah, the trick of writing line and notes is just listen incessantly and eventually an article comes about. So let's talk about your book, Let's Put on a Musical, which is about shows that you can do at high schools. How did you decide on the list of shows? And secondly, where did you research how all of the shows could be done. Did you actually see high school productions of them all? Well, being a high school teacher for eight years means I did see a lot of high school productions. But yeah, I love going to see high school productions and I will go whenever I possibly can. Um, I've, I've seen high school productions in, I would say, at least 10 states. Um, but the thing is that um, uh, <laughs> writing that book did mean going to every um, available production of anything. And what's really ironic is that I went to Marymount Community College, I'm sorry, Marymount Manhattan College, um, to see a production of She Loves Me, which was directed by Patricia Hogue Simon. And I had heard that John Simon, the notoriously difficult critic, was married to a woman named Patricia. Could this be she? 
Well, anyway, there was a party um, one time. Um, I don't remember what it was for, but anyway, I was at the party and I saw John Simon there, whom I did not know, whom I did not know. And uh, he was with a woman. So I started walking over to him to say, you know, are you the woman who directed that wonderful? She loves me. She did a terrific job. And what I didn't realize when I was walking over, she walked away a little thinking I wanted to talk to him. And he was rolling his eyes already thinking, oh, here comes another damn fool who's going to argue with me about a review I've written. I thought, this is great. This is so terrific because I'm not going to be talking to him. I'm going to be talking to her. So I went around. I said, are you Patricia Hoke Simon? Yes, she said, amazed that anybody would know or care. And I said, listen, your production, she loved me. It was terrific. And I'm writing this book. And do you have any advice? And she gave me advice. I put it in the book. <laughs> and um, that year, I got a Christmas card from her saying, John and I love your reviews. And I thought, honey, maybe you do. But he cannot possibly love my reviews because he writes uh, in a castigating fashion in a love fashion so um, anyway uh, we became really great friends and uh, it was so interesting that finally um, I would never talk to him but finally I remember I was at the WPA theater I think it was for songs in a new world when I finally turned to him and said I'm Peter Felicia we haven't met he said we have met he had to be right about that too you know I mean that was important to him so um, but um, the let's put on the musical book really came as a fluke um, uh, it uh, 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 ironically the director um, at the high school where I taught, gave me the idea. A wonderful man named Frank Roberts said, I think you should do this. And um, I pitched it. And, and ironically enough, the editor at the um, house, uh, the, the publishing house, had been a community theater actress. And so she was very interested in theater. And um, as a result said, oh, what a great idea for a book. You know, I was in applause uh, way back when, and I just loved doing it. And I know the thrill of being in community theater. So yes, write the book. Um, that'll really be great. I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're going to do it. You know, it's so funny when you hit people uh, with the things that interest them. Going back to that What's in a Name book, I remember going out with an editor giving one idea after another, after another, after another, after another, and she's saying, no, 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 what a terrible idea for a book. Are you crazy? No, we wouldn't buy that. Are you out of your mind? And finally, I said, a girl who has an impossible last name and wants to change it. Well, this editor's name was Gwen Montgomery, and she was about to get married to a person named Wendell Hassenpfeffer, something like that. And anyway, she would answer her phone when it rang, and there was no caller ID in these days. Gwen Montgomery, and he'd be on the other line saying, but not for long, because he expected her to be Gwen, become Gwen Hassenpfeffer. So because she might be saddled with an impossible last name, she thought it was a great idea for a book. So you never know what's going to hit. And because this woman had been in community theater and loved community theater, she wanted to do the book. And ironically enough, there was a second edition I was asked to do. And I spoke to my wonderful friend, Ken Bloom. And I said to him, they want me to take out 70 shows from this edition and add 70 shows. And I can't figure out what 70 shows to take out. He said, give me the list. Give me the list right now. Vroom, 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 vroom. He's, he's Xing out, and you know, he was right every time. It was so amazing that I couldn't edit myself, but I needed a, a, a fresh eye to do it, and he was phenomenal in choosing out the right shows to take out. That book is still in print, and I'm telling you, in the state of Kansas, when you start a high school theater program, you're given that book, which is really quite a wonderful honor. So let's talk about two more of your books. And first, I should just say to our listeners, 
you should really buy all of Peter's theater books and his YA books because they're really some of the best theater books ever written. So let's talk about hits and flops and the great parade. First hits and flops. What were some of the toughest races or what was the biggest hit and flop in the season? Well, you know, I mean, it goes back to um, 1971 and um, yes, what I did was I started um, in in 1960 uh, when the biggest hit was The Sound of Music and the biggest flop was something called The Pink Jungle, which um, starred Ginger Rogers and didn't even come into um, to Broadway. It closed out of town. So in 1971, people could argue that Follies was the biggest flop in that it lost the most money of any show. It lost $850,000, which in those days was incredible. Um, today, if a producer lost $850,000, he'd probably convince you he had a hit because musicals cost millions. So to only, quote unquote, lose $850,000 would seem not so bad at all. But back then, it was considered the biggest flop. But is Follies the biggest flop? It ran 522 performances. It's done all the time. People love it dearly. When it was done at Avery Fisher Hall back in the 80s, it was sold out immediately, even though tickets were as much as $100 when no Broadway show was costing that much. So it was really quite an incredible experience. So a lot of people cannot view Follies as a flop. Well, that year there was a musical called Lolita, My Love, a musical version of Lolita, the novel by Vladimir Nabokov. And Alan J. Lerner, the My Fair Lady Camelot guy, was writing the book and lyrics. So it boded well that this would um, turn out to uh, be something because God knows he's one of our strongest book writer and lyricists. And um, the score was by John Barry, who didn't have much theater experience, I'll grant you, but it was a wonderful composer. So, so anyway, the thing was it opened in Philadelphia and nobody liked it and it closed in Philadelphia. And I learned said, you know, I think I can fix it. I know what's wrong. And he did some work on it. And they did a little recasting and they came to Boston where I saw it. And again, nobody liked it. And it closed there. So while Follies may have lost more money than Lolita, my love, I consider Lolita, my love, the bigger flop because <laughs> shows that close out of town once <laughs> can be considered the biggest flop, but shows that close out of town twice. Well, can you do a bigger flop than that? I, wa- I wonder, you know, I say no. And by the way, that was the same year as Pretty Bell. But, um, you know, you close out of town twice. I say that's the biggest flop, even though you didn't lose as much money. So you wrote a book called The Great Parade about the 1963 to 64 Broadway season. How did you decide on that season? Well, ironically enough, what had happened was um, it was at the time, uh, the 50th anniversary of that season. And I said to my editor, I want to do a book about how much um, theater has changed in 50 years. I said, for example, in 1963-64, and I outlined what had happened that year and how it was so different from now. And he said, no, 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 no. Just write about that season. That season sounds so great. Because indeed, we had Carol Channing. Barbara Streisand, Carol Burnett, Helen Hayes, Robert Preston, Mary Martin, not together. They did I Do, I Do later. But uh, Julie Harris, Colleen Dewhurst. I mean, the names just kept on coming at Peter Falk. The names just kept on coming at you um, of people who were just in extraordinary shows. 
and uh, having an extraordinary time of it. And um, in those days, it was really something because most people played run-of-the-play contracts. And so uh, a lot of people really were involved uh, with their shows from the beginning till the end. So what I really wanted to do was make a comparing and contrasting thing. And he said, no, 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 right about the season. What I didn't anticipate when doing it was a lot of people would say, yes, but William Goldman wrote that definitive book about the season for 1967-68. And uh, so yours seems like um, a, a pale imitation of that, which is really too bad because indeed um, I, I do believe that if I had gone with my first impulse saying, look how the business has changed, um, it might have been a stronger book. Still, it's fun to read about what Broadway was like back then. And uh, there are a lot of um, certain uh, differences, even down to theater tickets, which used to be of different colors. And it was exciting to have all those stubs with different colors. Even that's changed. And to wrap up, I'll ask you, when the quarantine happened, you were coming up on seeing 12,000 shows. You saw a show, if not more, almost every day. How have you been keeping busy without being able to do that? Well, um, I've been working on a new book. I may be working on a new play. And um, frankly, I've been getting ahead of myself with um, with columns. Um, I'm, um, I'm all set almost through the end of August um, because I have had the time. And frankly, I've been visiting my girlfriend a lot. Um, I've been walking a uh, two miles to her apartment every day and two miles back. And I've lost 35 pounds, which believe me, I needed to do. So um, I, you know, I, I really do believe when uh, life gives you lemons, as they say, make lemonade. So as a result, I haven't been discouraged about the fact that there's no theater. Um, I've just channeled my energies in different directions. And as a result of that, I uh, have made the best use of the time. And um, we'll see what happens uh, when it comes back. Sure. Yes, I am 26 shows away from my 12,000th show. And yes, the year before this, I set an all-time record by seeing 401 shows in one year. Um, and, uh, you know, because producers invite me to workshops saying, what do you think? Not that they necessarily do what I think, but nevertheless, they ask. Um, so uh, there are matinees and there are those presentations during the day. So uh, yes, I'm a busy guy when there's theater, but I've made myself a busy guy when there's no theater. So tell us about the books and plays you have in the works. Uh, well, with Rob Schneider, um, I'm helping out on a book, uh, which is about 50 musicals that... Um, change the course of musical theater. Like for example, after Oklahoma, a lot of shows had dream ballets. They didn't before then really, but this one did. And so everybody said, oh, Oklahoma's a big hit. Let's do what they did. So there's a lot of imitation uh, that happens as a result of that. Um, a show like Rent really changed the course of history, mostly because it treated kids as first-class citizens. It gave them the first two rows of the orchestra at $20. In the old days, you know, uh, those kids would have had to sit in the last two rows of the balcony and it was wonderful. So that influenced a lot of shows, um, you know, the lottery, all that kind of stuff um, has really helped amazingly. So uh, I'm not a writer, but that uh, has, um, has been something that's taken up a great deal of the time too. And um, yeah, and sprucing up musicals uh, without music and um, the occasional look at, um, and the winner is, I mean, there are times when you really think, what's the point? Because, you know, maybe it just, maybe theater won't come back. I mean, nobody knows anything. I mean, remember when it was supposed to come back April 13th and then June 1st and then September 9th and now it's January 3rd, I think. You know, nobody knows anything. And uh, nobody's expected to know anything. This is just 
such a wild card. Um, it's just so sad that uh, it's happened and we just have to make the best of a bad situation. And that's what I always do. Well, I know that I and all of our listeners will be looking forward to reading those books and seeing those plays if and when we come back. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I can't tell you how much it meant to me to have someone of your immense knowledge and expertise. And listeners, thank you for joining us again. And remember to tune back in on Friday when we are joined by Ken Cantor. Ken is a Broadway actor who has appeared in the Grand Tour, Mame, Me and My Girl, and had an impressive nine-year run in The Phantom of the Opera. He has also appeared many times at the Paper Mill Playhouse, done the national tour of Anything Goes, had an off-Broadway run in The Fantastics, where the writers called him the best El Gallo, and Philemon. Thank you for listening.